and welcome to a No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Great to have you along with us. This last Sunday was in uh, the extraordinary form, the Feast of Christ the King. This is not to be confused with the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, which is celebrated on the last uh, liturgical Sunday of the year in the Novus Ordo, and we'll talk about the difference uh, a little later on. But the Feast of Christ the King is celebrated on the final Sunday of October for a particular reason. Uh, It's because it's the Sunday before All Saints Day. And as you know, uh, November 1st, that was just yesterday, was All Saints Day. And we give honor to the Church Triumphant on that day. And then today is November the 2nd, which is All Souls Day, which was instituted by the Church to remind us to pray for the Church suffering, that is, for the uh, faithful departed who are in purgatory. So let's do that right now, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Amen. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. And may the souls of the faithful departed, through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Now, the point of putting the Feast of Christ the King right before these two days honoring the Church triumphant and the Church suffering was to celebrate the Church militant, the faithful on earth who are fighting the good fight under the banner of Jesus Christ, our Heavenly King. The very first celebration of the Feast of Christ the King was on All Hallows' Eve, 1926, followed immediately by All Saints' Day and All Souls' Day, a veritable triduum of the Church militant, uh, triumphant, and suffering, and more on that uh, later in the program. But right now, I'd like to take a look at the traditional gospel, the gospel for the uh, ordinary or extraordinary form for the Feast of Christ the King. It's taken from John 18, 33 through 37. Pilate, therefore, went into the hall again and called Jesus and said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or have others told it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee up to me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would certainly strive that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. Pilate therefore said to him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. For this was I born, and for this came I into the world, that I should give testimony to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So, Jesus came to earth to establish a kingdom. And that kingdom is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And this kingdom is not of the earth. It is not of earthly origin. It comes from heaven. Jesus is a king who did not conquer lands, but rather conquered men's hearts. He's a king who conquered not by force, but by his cross. And the kingdom of the church is the kingdom of divine truth and grace. It is in the world and it is for the world. But it is not of the world, because the object of the church is not a worldly or natural one. As important as as worldly and natural objectives may be, the church's objective is entirely supernatural. It is the salvation and sanctification of souls. And that's no nonsense. And that's why the psalmist reminds us 
Put not your trust in princes, in the children of men in whom there is no salvation. Now, many of our fellow countrymen fear that we are uh, witnessing the end of American life as we once knew it, and they may well be right. But even if they are, it is not a cause of despair for Catholics, because we have the promise of Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Now, that promise was not made to the United States of America or, or to modern democracies, but to the Catholic Church. Earthly kingdoms come and go. It is the Church that communicates the saving grace of Christ to our fallen world. And the Catholic Church has outlived every evil empire and, uh, and endured every persecution that uh, was devised by wicked men and fallen angels for two millennia. And it's a well-known fact of history that the church grows stronger when she's persecuted, even when she's reduced to a remnant. And the Word of God tells us that to put, not to put our trust in human leaders. And read my lips, politics will not save the world. Only Jesus can do that, and he does it through his body, the church, throughout the ages until he comes in glory. Now, and that's when, you know, we will experience the fullness of the kingdom. And I I would point out that that Christ's promise also applies to the poor leadership in the church. Right? In the words, uh, the great uh, Catholic English historian Hilary Bullock, he said, The Catholic Church is an institution that I am bound to hold divine. But for unbelievers, a proof of its divinity might be found in the fact that no merely human institution conducted with such knavish imbecility would have lasted a fortnight. And things haven't changed much, uh, unless it is that they've gotten worse. So the philosophy uh, behind no-nonsense Catholic is to demonstrate that a lot of the confusion regarding the church can be cleared up pretty quickly so long as you're not trying to complicate matters. Uh, And while some things are complex and difficult to understand, they don't necessarily have to be the concern of the rank-and-file Catholic. Uh, You know, for example, there is a place for highly academic Bible study, but that place is precisely amongst academics. The truth is you don't need an advanced degree to have a saving faith. It's like Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson said, no soul can be lost by following the the simple and well-beaten path of ordinary devotion and prayer. You know, you certainly don't have to be a Bible scholar or an expert theologian to go to heaven. And and that's the point, I think, that seems to get lost in the shuffle of the, the various concerns amongst the leadership of the church today. You know, there's social justice and immigration and climate change and you know, the role of women in the church and synods on synodality. And and when we all know, or should know, that what matters are souls going to heaven. Hence the axiom in canon law, salus animorum suprema lex, the salvation of souls is the supreme law. That has to come first. And so, my good Catholic friend, let's you and I focus our prayers and works and sacrifices on the salvation of souls and the restoration of the church, and not place our faith in uh, material or political solutions. Come what may, let us work for the restoration of the Catholic Church in the same way that we await the return of Christ the King, Uh, not in fear or, or in despair, but in joyful hope. 
And that also is no nonsense. Okay, <clears throat> pardon me. Later on in the program, we're going to continue our look at an article from Father Peter Stravinskis from last week called um, What's Really Needed for a Eucharistic Revival with an examination of the practice of communion in the hand. Okay, you don't want to miss that. We're also going to look at the traditional gospel for All Saints Day and what it has to say about your life today and the connection between this gospel and the fabled order of Knights Templar, always a favorite topic here on No Nonsense Catholic. And finally, we know that some of our separated brethren reject prayer to the saints and even more uh, prayer for the souls of the faithful departed. And so since this is the month of the Holy Souls, in fact, it is All Souls Day, we're going to do a little Catholic kryptonite apologetic segment uh, to answer the questions, why do Catholics pray to the saints when the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus? And why do Catholics pray for the dead when the word purgatory isn't even in the Bible? And uh, when we come back, we're going to uh, take a look at why Pope Paul VI moved the uh, Feast of Christ the King from the last Sunday in October to the last Sunday in liturgical year, uh, the liturgical year. Or uh, did he do more than just move the feast? Okay, we're going to talk about all of that and more when we come back uh, after the break with lots more no-nonsense Catholic. But in the meantime, I wanted to remind you, this coming January the 14th, uh, we'll... The NPR will be hosting an evangelization conference right here at the Sacred Heart Chapel in Covina. It's going to be an all-day event, uh, and our featured speakers will be Johnny Romero, uh, brother of Jesse Romero, and a fine apologist and speaker in his own right, and our own Terry Barber, the uh, man who literally wrote the book on lay evangelization. Uh, admission is $35 for a single admission and $60 for a married couple. Online registration is open right now at vmpr.org, or if you like, you can call the office toll-free, 877-526-2151. That's 877-526-2151. And you can register by phone for the January 14th Virgin Most Powerful Evangelization Conference. And again, that's going to be here at the Sacred Heart Chapel. But uh, also, coming up before you know it, is going to be our annual Spiritual Warfare Conference. It's going to take place this year, or next year, uh, March 25th and 26th, 2023. And at this upcoming conference, now the Spiritual Conference, uh, Spiritual Warfare Conference has long been our most popular event, and, uh, and we've outgrown Sacred Heart Chapel. Uh, uh, and we're going to have this year a very special guest, Bishop Joseph Strickland will be joining us. Uh, as well as renowned exorcist Father Chad Ripperger, our own Jesse Romero, and uh, Dr. Dan Schneider and Kyle Clements from the Liber Christo Deliverance Ministry. So once again, uh, that conference is going to be held in Pomona because it holds more people. And registration, online registration is open now at vmpr.org, or you can call the office 877-526-2151 and reserve your place for our annual Spiritual Warfare Conference. Okay, back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio after these messages. (music) 
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. For two millennia, Christ and his Holy Church have been at the vanguard of true progress. According to the prophecy of Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, From the rising of the sun even to the going down, my name is great among the Gentiles. And in every place there is sacrifice, and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. Each and every hour of the day, every day of the year, with the exception of Good Friday, the host and chalice are raised somewhere on the earth. A holy sacrifice is celebrated around the world and around the clock. And in the words of our Lord, the time of fulfillment has arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, in the traditional Latin Mass, we just celebrated the Feast of Christ the King last Sunday, which is the last Sunday of October, uh, and which is different from the ordinary form calendar, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. But first, a, a little history. In Catholic terms, the Feast of Christ the King is still new having only been instituted just shy of 100 years ago, like 97 years ago in uh, 1925. Uh, It was in the aftermath of the First World War and the the rise of communism in Russia. And Pope Pius XI instituted the feast uh, in his encyclical Cuis Primus. And then it was celebrated for the first time on Halloween of 1926. Um, The feast is uh, instituted for the last Sunday of October to show its connection to the feasts of All Saints and All Souls Day, which follow. Uh, And while the world was increasingly telling Christians that they need to compartmentalize their faith uh, and give their highest allegiance to, you know, secular governments, Pope Pius XI wrote the following in Quis Primus. He said, If to Christ our Lord is given all power in heaven and on earth, If all men purchased by his precious blood are by a new right subjected to his dominion, if this power embraces all men, it must be clear that not one of our faculties is exempt from his empire. He must reign in our minds, which should assent with perfect submission and firm belief to revealed truths and the doctrines of Christ. He must reign in our wills, which should obey the laws and precepts of God. He must reign in our hearts, which should spurn natural desires and love God above all things and cleave to him alone. Now, see, this is all about Jesus being the Lord of your life, right? Being your personal Lord and Savior, as our separated brethren would say. But Pope Pius said that there's more. There's more to the kingship of Christ than his personal lordship over the individual believer. He said, All men, whether collectively or individually, are under the dominion of Christ. In him is the salvation of the individual. In him is the salvation of society. He is the author of happiness and true prosperity. Sorry, rented lips. I'll try that again. He is the author of happiness and true prosperity for every man and for every nation. If, therefore, the rulers of nations wish to preserve their authority to promote and increase the prosperity of their countries. They will not neglect the public duty of reverence and obedience to the rule of Christ. When once men recognize both in private and in public life that Christ is king, society will at last receive the great blessings of real liberty, well-ordered discipline, peace, and harmony. 
that these blessings may be abundant and lasting in Christian society, it is necessary that the kingship of our Savior should be as widely as possible recognized and understood. And to this end, nothing would serve better than the institution of a special feast in honor of Christ the King. So Pius XI said, the right which the, uh, the church has from Christ himself to teach mankind, to make laws and to govern people in all that pertains to their eternal salvation, that right was denied. And he's talking about the Protestant Reformation and then the Enlightenment and the rise of secularism. He says, then gradually the religion of Christ came to be likened to false religions and to be placed ignominiously on the same level with them. It was then put under the power of the state and tolerated more or less at the whim of princes and rulers. There were even some nations who thought they could dispense with God and that their religion should consist in impiety and the neglect of God. And here he's talking about you know, communism, and, and, uh, which is atheist in its nature. The rebellion of individuals and states against the authority of Christ has produced deplorable consequences. Boy, he's sure right there. I mean, the first kind of atheistic state, the first time uh, a modern nation tried to, to rule by impiety and the neglect of God, I mean, it wasn't the communists, it was uh, in France after the uh, revolution in 1789. Um, and so, you know, the, the deplorable consequences, I mean, it proved all too true. He was writing in the aftermath of one world war, another one was coming right around the bend. The Feast of Christ the King, then, was a, a response to the rise of secularism and indifferentism and atheism uh, in the early 20th century. But after Vatican II, in 1969, Pope St. Paul VI gave this feast a new name. He called it the Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. And he moved it from the Sunday before All Saints Day to the last Sunday of the liturgical year, that is, uh, the last Sunday before Advent. Or at least that's what I used to think. Uh, according to Michael Foley in an article uh, that was uh, in, published in Latin Mass magazine last year, he said the Feast of Christ the King was not nearly, merely moved, it was replaced. In Calendarium Romanum, the document announcing and explaining the new calendar, uh, Paul VI wrote, quote, The solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, occurs on the last Sunday of the liturgical year in place of the feast instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925 and assigned to the last day of October. See, the key words there are in place of, right? That, meaning instead of. See, rather than stating that the, uh, uh, the feast now occurs on a different date, uh, as he did with the Feast of the Holy Family, or that it's simply being moved, as was the case with the Corpus Christi, the Novus Ordo's Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, he says, replaces... Pius XI's Feast of Christ the King. And what really happened is that Paul VI abolished the uh, Feast of Christ the King and replaced it with a solemnity fabricated by Concilium, the liturgy committee that, uh, under Annabella Bunini that gave us the new order of the Mass. And now, those two celebrations most certainly have uh, a lot in common, but it's clearly not just the same feast moved to a different Sunday. And so what's different? Well, the new name, the new date, right? But also new prayers. All the proper prayers are new. And, and all of them de-emphasize the social reign of Christ the King. And why would that happen? 
when uh, clearly the Feast of Christ the King was, was instituted precisely to promote the social kingship of Christ. And the simplest answer seems to be that, that uh, Pius XI's integralism didn't fit with the spirit of Vatican II. Uh, you know, actually, you know, well, integralism, I mean, that, that term is much abused these days. But generally speaking, in integralism is the belief that your religious convictions should dictate your political and social actions, right? Can you imagine actually living according to the way you believe, right? That's, that, that's, that's what built Western civilization, um, that integralism. You know, specifically the principle that the Catholic faith should be the basis of public law and public policy within society. I mean, we're still living uh, on the fumes uh, of, that, uh, of that principle, you know, this is basically the opposite of, you know, Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. So integralism uh, is an embarrassment to the Catholic progressivism and, and ecumenism of Paul VI's new order. And as Foley writes in his article, he said, quote, the new feast guts the original of its intended meaning. The liturgical innovators kicked the can of Christ's reign down the road to the end of time so that it will no longer interfere with an easygoing accommodation to secularism. Let that sink in for a second. They're pretty harsh words. But the question is, what about all the saints over the centuries who upheld the doctrine that the church must not be totally separate from the state? You know, last year on All Saints Day, Dr. Peter Kuzneski uh, published a, a list of royal saints and blesseds as long as your arm. And then he asked the question, does modern democracy have a track record of sanctity like that? He asked, where are the dozens uh, of holy presidents and uh, prime ministers and cabinet members and congressmen? You know, to ask the question is to answer it. And then uh, Dr. Kosnevsky said, this leads me back to Pope Paul VI's suppression of one feast of Christ the King and his creation of another. And he asked the question, what's really going on? And he said, it seems to me that the original feast of Christ the King represents the Catholic vision of society as a hierarchy in which the private sphere and the public sphere are united in their acknowledgement of the rights of God and his church. This vision was put aside in 1969 to make way for a vision in which Christ is king of my heart and king of the uh, universe, king of the cosmos, uh, and both of which, of course, are, are entirely true. He is and should be the king of your heart, and he most certainly is the king of the universe. But... Um, Dr. Kosnevsky says, so the, the most micro level and the most macro level, but he's not king of anything in between. He's not the king of culture or society or industry or the state uh, or trade or education, civil government. In other words, for those spheres, we have no king but Caesar. Now, we live in a fallen world, and I, I have to break the news to you all earthly kingdoms are doomed to failure, all of them, precisely because they are earthly kingdoms. In this reality, uh, Dr. Kosnevsky argues that Christian monarchy is the best political system that's ever been devised or could be devised. As we can infer from its much greater antiquity and universality, monarchy is the system most natural to human beings. It's the system most akin to the supernatural government of the church. It is the system that lends itself most readily to collaboration and cooperation with the church in the salvation of men's souls, unquote. Uh, and then he goes on to say that the two wisest men of pagan antiquity, um, Plato and Aristotle, 
both maintained that democracy is so far from being a stable form of government that it, it is always teetering on the edge of anarchy or tyranny. Uh, you know, and if you want proof of that, film at 11, check your local listings. Today, of course, the prospects for a Catholic monarchy seem pretty slim, uh, you know, to say the least. And, and so in the meantime, it is well to remember that the church teaches that Catholics who live in a society where the citizens have the right to vote, Catholics have a duty to vote, and that's you and me. And there is an election coming up, and I'm not going to talk about, uh, you know, the the you know specific uh, uh, races or any of that. But I will say that you have a duty. If you have the right to vote, you've got a duty to vote, and to vote for people of good Christian character, and in the absence of people of good Christian character, to vote for those who are at least the least hostile to Christian principles. And to be aware that things are not always as they seem. You know, Pope Benedict tells us that there were a lot of of people in that crowd shouting for Barabbas who thought that they were uh, voting, if you will, for the Messiah. All right. Back with lots more uh, on this and other topics when we return. No-Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. You know, yeah, just before the break, we were uh, comparing a little bit. I was, I kind of got off script there. We were comparing the uh, uh, modern democracies and Christian monarchies. And I brought up Jesus and Barabbas. And uh, it's because of something that Pope Benedict XVI wrote in his uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Volume 2, that in the New Testament, there is this one uh, example of democracy. When Pilate uh, told the crowd, you know, who do you want to release, Jesus uh, or, or Barabbas? But Benedict pointed out that Barabbas's name was also Jesus, and that Barabbas is the Aramaic bar Abba, and it means son of the father. So if you were a member of the crowd and you didn't know either of these men personally, but you were waiting for the Messiah to come, and Pilate gave you an, a choice between Jesus, who calls himself King of the Jews, and Jesus, the Son of the Father, which one of those two men would sound to you like the Messiah, and which one like the revolutionary? And so again, you have to be discerning when you cast that vote. You know, you, you need to be, uh, it needs to be an educated vote. Okay, that's, that's the point I wanted to make. Um, you know, but, the, you know, like, even though uh, a return to Catholic monarchy seems unlikely, you know, uh, Dr. Kosnevsky said that, you know, we in the, the modern democratic West ought to have the courage to admit that, uh, that what we're doing isn't working and that we're digging ourselves uh, collectively into the deepest and darkest pit that humanity has ever seen. Compared to this, he says, I would prefer to take my chances on monarchy and aristocracy. In all of its checkered episodes, it has a proven track record of sanctity and defense of the faith and nothing else does. So words to think about. You know, I've been uh, promoting uh, the universal call to holiness from Vatican II. Essentially, it's Christian chivalry. Now, I've been promoting this for decades because I believe that it is possible to, uh, to cultivate moral virtue even in the hostile environment of our vice-ridden secular society. 
You know, again, that universal call to holiness, the quest for Christian perfection, was the real message of Vatican II that's been so badly corrupted by the progressivism in the Church. You know, like Pope Leo the Great said, the devil is always discovering something novel against the truth. Furthermore, I believe that the ideal of, of Christendom can and will be resurrected in the West uh, precisely through the restoration of the Catholic Church. And, you know, all of that seems perfectly obvious to me. I'm a, I'm a believing Catholic and a medievalist to boot. But many people, modern people, I, I suppose maybe even you, find that sort of thing almost incomprehensible. You know, so often when I bring these up, the common reaction is, well, you can't turn back the clock. You know, so many of my secular friends, and too many of my Catholic ones, um, you know, deem it impossible to, to, to uh, you know, realize the ideal of a restored Christendom, you know, even for the Church to recover her former status, you know, in secular society because of the inevitability of progress. They say it would take a miracle. And, well, let me ask you, would it take a miracle to restore Christian monarchy? Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course it would. Uh, but personally, I believe in miracles. And, and who among the early Christians who were living under the persecution of the pagan Roman Empire would have ever believed that such a thing as what medieval Christendom became was even possible? You know, the all-powerful Roman Empire of Jesus' day would give way to many sovereign kingdoms whose common thread was not an earthly emperor, but a heavenly king. Not force, but faith. And that those earthly monarchs, who understood that they reigned by the grace of God, had as a first duty the protection and preservation of the Catholic faith. Could they even imagine such a society possible? Probably not. And that tells us that, yes, the, the establishment of Christendom was a miracle, but it happened. And there's an axiom in physics that if a thing has happened, it can happen. In other words, if it happened once, it can happen again. And that's no nonsense. Okay, moving on. It is All Souls Day. Yesterday was All Saints Day. Um, and I'll ask you a question. Have you ever seen a Maltese cross? Right, it's, it's that cross where each of the four arms terminate in uh, two points. Right? It's an eight-pointed cross. And it was originally, I mean, it's worn today by the Knights of Malta, a white uh, cross on their black habit. And they were, the Knights of Malta, of course, originally the Knights Hospitaller, which was the second religious uh, group to take on a military character. The first, of course, being the Knights Templar. And uh, the, that eight-pointed cross was originally... <clears throat> granted to the Knights Templar by Pope Eugenius III, or Pope Eugene, if you prefer, who was a spiritual son of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who wrote the Rule of Life for the Knights Templar. And uh, that Templar cross was red, of course, worn in their white habits. Um, and um, according to Pope Eugenius, quoting now, the four arms of the cross symbolize the cardinal virtues of justice, fortitude, prudence, and temperance, while the eight points of the cross represent the eight beatitudes proclaimed by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. The Templars were to be an army of saints. And if the restoration of Christendom today uh, relies uh, or rests on the universal call to holiness, then we need, we need an army of saints. So uh, I want to take a, a look now at, a, um, at, the, at the Gospel of the Beatitudes. Um, it's Matthew 5, 2 through 11. Then he began to teach them as follows. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will have their fill. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted in the cause of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and utter all kinds of calumnies against you for my sake. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. And by the way, um, I was reading there from the New Catholic translation of the Bible, and it's almost word for word the same as the Douay, so it might not be surprising why that's becoming my, you know, favorite modern version. <clears throat> but in the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us the keys to finding happiness in this world while teaching us how to reach heaven at the same time. You know, to trust in God alone and to turn to him in our adversities, to have true contrition for our sins, to practice self-control, uh, confident of his divine assistance to do only what's right in the eyes of God, to practice forgiveness that we might be forgiven, to keep our soul free from sins of impurity, and to keep peace with others as becomes true children of God, to always be ready to suffer for the Catholic faith in order to win heaven. This is a, a blueprint for holiness and for happiness in this life as well as the next. Yet yeah, following our Lord can make you happy. It can also make you the subject of ridicule <laughs> because his message, as St. Paul says, is foolishness to the worldly. So you remember, you know, if you really try and live the Beatitudes, Jesus made this final promise. He said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and utter all kinds of calumnies against you for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. In the same manner, they persecuted the prophets who were, or who preceded you. You know, see, it's no wonder that among all, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's no wonder on All Saints Day, we give honor to the church triumphant, and that All Souls Day was instituted by the church to remind us to pray for the church suffering. And, and that is all the faithful departed who are in purgatory. And it just so happens that uh, both those uh, topics are targets for some pretty formidable Catholic kryptonite, which, as you may recall, is our term here for arguments against Catholic beliefs that many Catholics typically can't answer. Uh, so in regard to prayers to the saints, our Bible-only friends will ask, why do Catholics pray to Mary and the saints when the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus? You know, and, and the response is that when Catholics pray to the Blessed Virgin or to the saints in heaven, we're not bypassing Christ, you know, whom we most certainly acknowledge as the sole mediator between God and man. On the contrary, we are going to Christ through Mary and the saints. How? By asking for their intercession, for asking them to intercede with us for Christ. You know, we read in Scripture how St. Paul asked his fellow Christians to intercede for him. Finally, brethren, pray for us so that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified as it was with you. And in Romans, therefore, I exhort you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, join me in my labors by praying to God for me. St. James says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And if this is true, uh, how, how powerful then the prayers of the mother of our Lord or the saints in heaven? 
At Cana, Jesus performed his first miracle through the intercession of his blessed mother. <clears throat> and it's clear in the book of Revelation, pardon me, it's clear in the book of Revelation that the saints in heaven will intercede for us with their prayers. Uh, it says in Revelations uh, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, Another angel came forward with a gold censer and stood at the altar. He was given a large quantity of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar that stood before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Uh, and it's clear that in the records of primitive Christianity, the first generation of Christians eagerly sought the intercession of the saints. In the 4th century, uh, St. John Chrysostom wrote, When you perceive that God is chastening you, fly not to his enemies, but to his friends, the martyrs, the saints, and those who were pleasing to him, and who have great power. So if the saints have such great power with God, how much more the Queen of Saints, his Blessed Virgin Mary. And the other question is, what about prayers for the dead? What about purgatory? Where purgatory isn't even in the Bible, they say. Well, again, the book of Revelation in 1217 makes it clear that nothing unclean will enter heaven. But uh, how many of us die in a state of spiritual perfection? You know, Scripture and tradition teach that there is punishment due for sins and eternal punishment for mortal sins and temporal punishment for venial sins. And it's the sacrament of penance that remits the guilt of sin and the eternal punishment, but not all the temporal punishment that's due for sin. We're going to talk about that and, uh, and lots more, including communion in the hand uh, and, a, and the rest of it. <laughs> when we come back, lots more No-Nonsense Catholic coming right up. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. You know, I uh, uh, the end of that last segment just snuck up on me. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't quite ready for it. We were talking about purgatory. We were talking about uh, praying for uh, the souls of the departed. And, you know, purgatory is not some kind of second chance for salvation. But as I was mentioning before the break, there is temporal punishment due for sins. And the, uh, if, you have, if you're in mortal sin, an unrepented mortal sin, you know, will send you to hell. Uh, confession can take away that uh, eternal punishment or, you know, acts of perfect contrition, something we can go into another time. But there's still temporal punishment too, both for mortal sins and venial ones. And that uh, punishment in, in justice needs to be accounted for. So that temporal punishment can be satisfied, I guess is the right word, uh, in this life by doing good works, uh, assisting at Holy Mass, you know, receiving the sacraments, uh, almsgiving, prayer, that sort of thing, corporal and spiritual works of mercy. But after death, any remaining punishment will be satisfied in purgatory. And Catholic Christians have always believed in the existence of a place, uh, you know, a temporal place between heaven and hell. It's not eternal, but where souls will go to be punished for those lesser sins and repay the debt of temporal punishment uh, for sins that are already forgiven. And that we can help uh, those holy souls remit their debt of punishment through our prayers and sacrifices. You know, and it's true the word purgatory is not in the Bible, just like the words Trinity and Incarnation and Bible, for that matter. Uh, obviously, all Christians believe in concepts and doctrines that are not explicitly stated in uh, Holy Scripture. 
But the Bible does show the process by which lesser sins are purged away and the soul is saved. Um, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, if someone's work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. He says the person will be saved, but only by passing through fire. And the book of Hebrews distinguishes between those who go straight to heaven as the church of the firstborn and those who enter only after undergoing purification as the spirits of the just made perfect. And then we read in the, in the second book of Maccabees that it is a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead. So, And, and that's, a, that's a very clear reference to prayer for the dead um, and, and may shed some light on why the Protestant reformers um, who denied the doctrine of purgatory wanted to delete the book of Maccabees from the Holy Bible. In any case, for 1,500 years, uh, all Christians considered these biblical references to purgatory, and the majority of Christians still do. And that would be true if it was only the Catholic Church, but it's also the Eastern Orthodox and the, the Byzantine Catholic churches, as well as the Latin Church, and even some Anglican, Lutheran, and Methodist uh, traditions hold that there is cleansing after death. Okay? And that's no nonsense. All right, last week we looked at an article from Father Peter Stravinskas called uh, What's Really Needed for a Eucharistic Revival. And he's talking about the American bishops and their uh, three-year Eucharistic revival that they have proposed. And he said that uh, all the teaching and preaching and programs in the world will avail little to nothing if we don't address the root causes of unbelief. Namely, he says, that the signs and symbols of the sacred liturgy no longer support the teaching. And, and he pointed out uh, um, you know, that to reverse this problem, um, that, uh, that the Vatican II Constitution on the liturgy never mentioned or much less mandated eliminating Latin and Gregorian chant or turning the altars to face the people or receiving communion in the hand uh, you know, or destroying altar rails and, and extraordinary ministry of Holy Communion, etc. Um, and which brings us to his final points, which are that first, lay distribution of the Holy Sacrament diminishes two sacraments, right? Extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion is what he's talking about. He says that it diminishes the nature of the Eucharist itself, because if anyone can distribute it, then what's the big deal? And it says it uh, um, diminishes the unique identity of the ordained minister. St. Thomas Aquinas, in, in one of the hymns that he composed for Corpus Christi, uh, has us sing, as only the priest can confect, only does he distribute. Right? So you can see it's pretty clear. Which brings us to then communion in the hand, which is his final point. And uh, he talks about how the practice uh, in modern times arose in the Low Countries, France, Germany, after the Council. And Pope Paul consulted the World Episcopate, and the vast majority of bishops voted against it. And in uh, Memoriale, thank you, I'll be back, Memoriale Domini, in 1969, the Pope um, apparently concerned about schism, acquiesced to the will of those disobedient countries who were already doing communion in the hand. He allowed them to continue the practice under an indult. Uh, and only there, but it didn't end uh, in those places. And other countries, you had liturgists and progressive bishops who started militating for it as well. Um, yeah, U.S. bishops and liturgists got on the bandwagon. It says the issue came up several times for a vote for the bishops and was defeated each time. Uh, finally, though, through the machinations of Joseph Cardinal Bernadin, who was uh, president of the Bishops' Conference at the time, the illicit and the illicit polling of absent bishops, bishops through mail-in ballots 
brought about a victory in 1977. So that mail-in ballot thing is something that we've been dealing with in the church, apparently, even before uh, uh, our secular society. Anyway, uh, a lot of uh, people in the church say will counter that communion in the hand was the practice of the early church. And, you know, that's a theory that's been widely disputed. And I just, it's coincidentally, a couple of weeks ago, I read a piece from, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you who wrote it or the university where she is a professor because I don't want to, um, you know, cast stones here, uh, or, you know, calumniate some person personally. But in this article, she claimed that she's a, uh, an historian of the liturgy and that she was shocked, shocked to discover that, uh, you know, communion in the hand was controversial uh, amongst some Catholics because it was the practice of the early church all the way until the 8th century. And, uh, and then she proceeded to offer her evidence. The, the problem being twofold. Number one, that she relied very heavily on one particular source, that of St. Cyril of Jerusalem, and that she quoted selectively. Okay? Uh, and at the same time, not only was she quoting selectively from, from, uh, to make her point, but she completely ignored the many historical condemnations of communion in the hand, including uh, Pope Sixtus I in 1115, the Council of Saragossa in the year 380, excommunicated anyone who would receive Holy Communion in the hand, which was then confirmed by the Senate of Toledo. That's the 4th century. Pope St. Leo the Great, defended uh, and required faithful obedience to communion only on the tongue. The Synod of Rouen in 650 condemned communion in the hand as a safeguard against sacrilege. It said, This sacred synod instructed the clergy, quote, Do not put the Eucharist in the hands of any laymen or laywomen, but only in their mouths. The Sixth Ecumenical Council, Constantinople II, uh, in 680 and 681, forbade the faithful to take the sacred host in their hand under threat of excommunication. Now, how can a liturgical scholar, quote-unquote, maintain that communion in the hand was the universal norm until the 8th century, you know, in light of all of these condemnations from the very highest authority, popes and councils, even an ecumenical council, all the way back to the year 115 and all before the 8th century? You know, by the time uh, Thomas Aquinas got around to writing the Summa Theologia, he said, uh, hence the corporal and the chalice are consecrated and likewise the priest's hands for touching the sacrament. And then the, the Council of Trent taught infallibly, 1545 through 1565, it is a 20-year council, great dogmatic council. Quote, the fact, that the, on, the fact that only the priest receives Holy Communion with his consecrated hands is an apostolic tradition. And I think that that's fair to say, considering the fact that you got Pope Sixtus all the way back in the year 115, okay, within living memory uh, of, of the first generation of Christians, at forbidding the practice. You know, and in our own day, we have the admonition of Cardinal Seurat that receiving communion in the hand is part of what he calls in a diabolical attack on the faith. And at least in part because uh, um, Dan Burke, who used to be the president of EWTN News, he said communion in the hand leads to desecration at every Mass. Of course, he's talking about, since you know the, the Eucharist is being passed hand-to-hand and, and typically no patent is used, that particles of the, the sacred host are you know, being spread about and, and, and trodden underfoot. 
Our Lady of Akita told Sister Sasagawa to receive communion only on the tongue. Right? And at Fatima, the Angel of Peace, right? There's a um, held a, a chalice over which there was suspended a host that was bleeding, drops of the precious blood falling from the host into the chalice, and he made this act of reparation uh, three times. You know, Father Zuldorf commented on that. He said, if the angel prostrated himself on the ground before the sacred host and chalice, you know, if that's the way an angel reacts, why should we do any less? So at the end of the day, I don't find any compelling evidence that communion in the hand was ever a universal practice in the church. And even if there were, as Father Stravinska says, even if there was such evidence, he said, indeed, there are many practices of the ancient church that few would want revived, uh, such as lifelong penance, <laughs> he gives as an example. You know, what is certain, what is incontestable, is that for over a millennium, reception on the tongue has been universal, and that the communion in the hand, in those places where it was practiced, has been, you know, was purposely abandoned for more than a thousand years everywhere in the church, both east and west. And that's no nonsense. Okay, um, I will close with this. Father Stravinska is talking about these various elements um, of the Mass that have been abandoned in practice. Uh, he points out that none of them, the use of Latin, putting the tabernacle in the sanctuary, the priest facing the altar, uh, the people receiving communion, kneeling and on the tongue. He says, none of that contradicts a single paragraph in the Vatican II Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. Yeah, and, and, and he's absolutely right. You can read uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium until your eyes bleed, and you're not going to find anything about any of those practices. And so a return to the more traditional practice of the faith is perfectly in sync with the Second Vatican Council. And uh, I'll close with the words of, of St. John Henry Cardinal Newman, writing in the year 1831, while he was still an Anglican. He says, writes that the church has appointed, and with reason, being long used, cannot be disused without harm to our souls. And there's no better example of the truth of those words than the loss of faith in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist after the imposition of the liturgical novelties uh, after Vatican II. And that, of course, is the very reason that the bishops have called for a Eucharistic revival in the first place. All right, well, another one has gone by. I'm sorry that uh, my uh, lips and my brain didn't match up, <laughs> didn't sync together perfectly throughout this entire hour, but I, I hope you'll forgive me for being human and, uh, and that you will continue listening to No Nonsense Catholic and all the programs here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We couldn't do it without you, so please keep uh, offering up your prayers and sacrifices on our behalf. If any uh, financial help you can give us is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, from me personally, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.